Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. So like everyone else, I'm interested in what makes humans unique, but in particular, I'm focused on what makes our brains unique. Now, as has been mentioned several times today, the human brain is much larger than the chimpanzee brain. So this is a human brain superimposed next to a chimpanzee brain. And this doesn't really give us much insight into what's driving the huge differences in behavior between us and chimpanzees. But there are some possibilities that come to mind, and many of which have been discussed, a few of which I'll reiterate. Uh, one is anatomical changes. So perhaps um, at the microscopic level, there are things going on that we can only see by uh, looking with particular stains or looking at measurements of activity in the brain. Changes in DNA, we've talked about that a lot in this symposium. Regulation of genes, you've just heard several uh, talks about that, and that's something that I'm interested in and how that's outputted into expression, gene expression. And finally, as has been alluded to several times, the human brain is uniquely vulnerable to many disorders. And we believe that by understanding what makes the human brain unique will provide insight into those disorders and vice versa. And so one of the challenges of trying to understand human brain gene expression is this idea of heterogeneity. And I'm just going to quickly go through that. Um, this was kind of talked about in the beginning. So the DNA in every cell in your body is essentially the same. So how do we get differences in our cells in terms of what their function is or in terms of the differences in our tissues? Well, that stems from which mRNAs are being expressed from the genes in a cell and then subsequently turned into proteins. And this is a bit of a, a simplified one-on-one -on -one, um, uh, expression pattern. However, when we're thinking about comparative gene expression, it gets even more complicated. So for example, just within one given species, if you're looking within two different brain regions, the mRNAs that are expressed may be different. And in addition, the same mRNA may be expressed, but at different levels. So this gets to a bit of the, the various types of complexities. So that's within one species, and then we're trying to compare between or among various species. And so we have another layer of uh, complexity there. And so you may say, since the proteins are kind of the end of the workflow, and these are the molecules that are really doing the work in the cell, why not study the proteins? Well, in terms of doing these large-scale comparative experiments, we don't really have the technology yet to be looking um, at all proteins simultaneously. However, we can look at all mRNAs simultaneously in a given tissue or cell. And several people have already mentioned the technologies that can be used uh, for doing so. And so everywhere throughout my talk where I'm mentioning gene expression, what I really mean is that we're measuring the levels and amounts of mRNAs in that given tissue or cell. And so many features have contributed to human evolution. So how can we use these technologies to look at these features? And which features should we look at? Well, I would argue that speech and language is arguably the most compelling and unique human feature. However, it may be one of the most complicated to actually try and study at a molecular level. So the question that my research attempts to address is, can we uncover the origins of human language at a genetic and molecular level? So how do we even start to try and attempt to answer that question? Well, there are two or perhaps more ways of, of getting at this answer, and I'm going to talk about both of them today. One is to use a candidate or single gene approach, if we had such a single gene, to try and understand these language pathways. 
And then the second would be to use a hypothesis-generating approach to uncover multiple potential pathways. So as I said, I'll mention, I'll talk about both of them, but I'm going to start with this candidate single-gene approach. And so with trying to use an analogy to Stanley Kubrick's uh, adaptation of 2001, in the movie, a black monolith appears, the apes touch it, and now all of a sudden they can use objects for tools or weapons. Well, perhaps there was a black monolith of a, a gene that enabled, enabled us to evolve language. Well, of course, nothing is that simple. It's always more complicated, but we can investigate the possibility that changes in a single gene could perhaps alter a complex human trait such as language. And our entry point into this single gene um, candidate approach came about when a large multi-generational family with an inherited speech deficit was investigated. And what was found was that in every individual in the family that had this speech and language deficit, as indicated here with the filled in circles and squares, all of these individuals had a mutation in the same gene. And this is the gene encoding for FOXP2. This is an image of FOXP2. This was already mentioned in a previous talk. And subsequently, a number of unrelated individuals were identified with mutations or truncations in FOXP2. And this kind of solidified FOXP2 as a potential so-called language gene. So what is so important about FOXP2, and what can it tell us about trying to understand the molecular pathways underlying speech and language? Well, first of all, FOXP2 is expressed in the brain at the right time and, at the, and in the right places. So its expression peaks during human fetal brain mid-gestation. So this is a critical time point in brain development when many connections are being made and when the circuitry for language and other cognitive processes are being laid. In addition, it's expressed in areas of the brain important for cognition. So in these uh, images of human fetal brain, the dark areas are showing where FOXP2 mRNA is expressed. And what we can see is that FOXP2 is expressed throughout the cerebral cortex, and this is an area important for cognition. Moreover, FOXP2 is also expressed in areas of the brain important for integrating motor functions, which is an obvious important part of speech and language. So, for example, throughout the striatum and cerebellum. In addition to where and when it's expressed, another important feature of FOXP2 came about when its uh, protein st structure was studied. So FOXP2's protein has been very well conserved throughout evolution, and as was mentioned previously, this typically indicates that it has an important function. However, when, the, when humans and chimpanzees split from a common ancestor, the human form of FOXP2 acquired two mutations, resulting in two changes to the protein, so two different amino acids. And because it had been highly conserved up until that point, this suggested that it had perhaps undergone what is called accelerated evolution. And so we thought perhaps that human FOXP2 evolved alongside with the emergence of this human-specific trait, language. In addition, the function of FOXP2 is very important. It's a transcription factor. And as it's already been mentioned, transcription factors bind to DNA, and they regulate, turn on or off uh, genes into mRNA. And so this is obviously a very important part of a cell, which genes are being turned on and turned into proteins and, and doing the, uh, the functions of the cell. So based on these three aspects of FOXP2, when and where it's expressed, its accelerated evolution, 
and the fact that it's a transcription factor, we set out to ask several questions. First of all, what are the genes that FOXP2 regulates, since it's a transcription factor? More specifically, what are the genes regulated by the human form of FOXP2, since it had undergone accelerated evolution? And finally, which genes regulated by FOXP2 are important in neurodevelopmental disorders such as autism? As I, as I already mentioned, the human brain appears to be uniquely vulnerable to many of these disorders. So a number of years ago, we conducted the first study to identify targets of human FOXP2 using human fetal brain tissue. And we found a number of interesting findings, the first of which was that there appeared to be many target, an enrichment of many target genes associated with diseases such as schizophrenia and autism. Secondly, we also noticed that a number of target genes themselves had undergone a faster rate of evolution. So this suggested to us that perhaps FOXP2 and its target genes had co-evolved in order to build the molecular circuitry needed for language. So next we wanted to ask the question, does human FOXP2 have unique target genes? And so we attempted to address this experimentally in the following manner. We took neuronal cells and we put into those cells either the human form of FOXP2 or the chimpanzee form of FOXP2. We then applied the mRNA from these cells to a high-throughput chip that's already been mentioned, a microarray. So we could query, so this is one of these technologies where we can query all of the mRNAs being expressed simultaneously in these human or chimpanzee FOXP2 neurons. And what we found was that there were over 100 genes that were the expression of which was differentially regulated when the cells had either the human form of FOXP2 or the chimpanzee form of FOXP2. So this led us to conclude that indeed, yes, the human form of FOXP2 does have unique target genes and functions. So what was interesting about these genes? Well, one of the more striking findings to us was that a number of genes are target genes involved in motor and craniofacial development. And as already been mentioned, this is an, this is an important part of human evolution. And in fact, it's also very important for speech and language. And moreover, patients with mutations in FOXP2 have craniofacial deficits. So this made sense with the information we had about those individuals. In addition, when we looked at this list of genes and overlapped it with a list that we had from human and chimpanzee brain tissue, so genes differentially expressed in tissue, we found a significant overlap. So this was very encouraging to us because it suggested that differences that we were finding in cells growing in a dish were being recapitulated in tissue and solidified that these human-specific targets, FOXP2, really did have a unique pattern of expression in the tissue. Now, finally, to attempt to address which targets of FOXP2 are involved in neurodevelopmental disorders, we needed a, a human system that where we could model brain development. So to do this, we're using human fetal neuroprogenitors. They grow rapidly in a cell culture dish. However, when treated with the right cocktail of factors, they stop growing and, through a process of differentiation, turn into neurons. Now, these two images were taken at the same magnification. You can see that the cell bodies have now shrunken in size and are extending these long, fine processes, similar to what a neuron looks like. So we can use this model system to study human-specific signaling pathways. And what's also interesting to us is that during this process of differentiation, 
FOXP2 expression increases, and it increases at a time where we're seeing initiation of genes important for differentiation, giving us, again, more insight into FOXP2 function. And the other nice thing that we can do with this cellular system is we can modulate the levels of any gene of interest. So we can prevent expression of FOXP2 during this differentiation process, or we can increase expression of FOXP2 during the proliferation phase when it's normally not expressed, and then use these technologies to query which genes are changing and in which direction uh, on a large scale. And so we've done this. We've identified many target genes of human FOXP2, but I just wanted to give you an example of one of the genes that we've been, we followed up in more detail because of its link to neurodevelopmental disorders, and that is the gene encoding MET. And MET is interesting because it's a signaling molecule. It's a receptor tyrosine kinase, and there's, there's been work showing that it's involved in neuronal differentiation, may be important for uh, neuron, neuronal pathfinding, and most importantly, it's an autism candidate gene. And so what we found in our cellular system was that when FOXP2 levels were going up, MET levels were going down. And through a series of other experiments, we were able to show that FOXP2 actually directly binds to the promoter of MET to repress its expression, not only in cells, but also in tissue. And what is also nice is that we can see a correlation to this result in vivo in human fetal brain tissue. So we see an inverse pattern of expression of FOXP2 and MET. So if we just focus on the cerebral cortex, what we can see is that FOXP2 is expressed in the deeper layers of the cortex, whereas MET is expressed in more superficial layers. And again, also here, FOXP2 in deeper layers, MET in more superficial layers. So again, this makes sense in terms of FOXP2 repressing expression of MET, that they would be expressed in different layers of the cortex. And what's also very nice about this example is that it demonstrates the importance of FOXP2 regulating gene expression in an area of the brain important for cognition, the cerebral cortex. And it also highlights that FOXP2 does indeed directly regulate genes involved in neurodevelopmental disorders such as autism by showing that MET is a target gene. So to summarize the first part of my talk on FOXP2, FOXP2 is important because it's a transcription factor, regulates the expression of other genes. It's expressed in the brain at the right time in the right place for having an important role in setting up language circuitry. And it's undergone accelerated evolution, so it's likely to have played uh, a role in the evolution of this unique human trait. And this evolution has led to changes in gene expression, specifically in human brain, as demonstrated by our experiments. And these human-specific target genes are involved in CNS development, neurological disease, and as I pointed out, in craniofacial development. And finally, what we're really beginning to flesh out is that FOXP2 regulates many genes and pathways involved in neuropsychiatric neurodevelopmental disorders, such as autism and schizophrenia. And so moving on to touch briefly on how we could potentially use hypothesis-generating techniques to uncover a multitude of possible pathways involved in language. How can we do that? So the question is, can we again uncover human-specific language networks of gene expression using a large-scale approach? And this is just one attempt to try and look at the multiple layers of complexity in trying to understand networks of gene expression uh, underlying language. But again, it's always more complicated even than that. 
So how can we begin to do this? Well, we would like to look at the expression of all of the genes simultaneously again. And uh, in the past, we and others have used the technology that I've already mentioned, a microarray, to query that. But we'd like to move forward and use uh, the technology others have mentioned, next generation sequencing. And particularly for species comparison, so for comparative approaches, this has proven to be um, much better than the older technology, as you'll see in the next slide. So we started out uh, with a pilot project where we were looking at three areas of the brain, frontal pole, hippocampus, and caudate nucleus. And we're looking in three species, human, chimp, and macaque. And I'd just like to say that uh, this is all post-mortem brain tissue, and it's um, acquired from individuals that have died from natural causes, or in the case of the humans, not this human, uh, <laughs> usually from accidents and non-brain-related um, disorders. And so we applied this technology, and what we found was that there were many hundreds of genes that were differentially expressed along the human lineage. And so these genes are going up or down in human brain compared to chimp or human brain compared to rhesus macaque and are similar between chimpanzee and rhesus macaque, similar to the paradigms you've heard in the other talks. And the other thing that you can see here is that the next generation sequencing differentially expressed genes are plotted in purple. And we did a similar experiment using the older technology, the microarrays, and here's an example of how you can see how the new technology really is more sensitive and is giving us much more information, almost two to five times greater the number of genes using the next generation sequencing technology. But we're not interested just in genes going up or down in human brain. The nice thing is that we can use these data, not just from the sequencing, but also from the microarrays, to look at other patterns of gene expression, what we call co-expression. So one way to think about this it's kind of like a social network where you're more highly connected to your friends and to people who have similar interests, uh, sim who like the same musical groups, the same restaurants, things like that. We can also extract that information from gene expression and determine which genes have similar likes, in this case, patterns in the various areas of the brains to other genes. And so it's really hard to see this, but the take-home message is that this is a network of uh, genes that are co-expressed specifically in human brain. So we can tease out which networks of co-expression are specific to each of the species. And I'd like to show uh, this example because this gene circled right here, thrombospondin 2, has been shown in, in, by others in detail to be having a specific pattern of expression in the human brain. So this network serves sort of as a proof of principle uh, experiment for demonstrating that we really can use a network approach to identify human-specific networks of co-expression. And just one more example. This one is a little bit easier to visualize, and sometimes people like to use the analogy of an, an airport or an airline map, and you can think of this like as O'Hare or JFK, and these genes are serving as the most connected or as hub genes in this network, and they're, they're, they receive a higher priority. And the reason I also like to show this particular network is this is a gene that we know nothing about. We, we have no idea what the function is, yet it appears to be the most highly connected gene in this particular network. In addition, this is a gene, GABR1, that's involved in epilepsy, so linked to a disease. And so we can use this sort of um, method of looking at gene co-expression 
to take from that list of hundreds or thousands, depending on your data set of genes differentially expressed, and say, which are the important ones to follow up? Which are the ones that I'm going to use now to make, for example, a humanized mouse, as we've heard in the, uh, the previous talks? So to conclude um, on the second half of the talk, next-generation sequencing can identify the expression of, hundred genes, of hundreds of genes changing specifically in the human brain. These network approaches of the data can uncover human-specific networks of gene co-expression. And we can use these networks to highlight both known and novel genes for the study of human brain evolution. But what does this have to do with language? Well, as I mentioned, this was a pilot project and where we had just chosen uh, three brain regions uh, to start with. But what we're doing now is looking in the cerebral cortex in areas in that we believe are important for language. In particular, we're looking for regions that are connected along this tract in the human brain, the arcuate fasciculus, uh, seen here in green, that appears to have a different um, morphology in the human brain compared to chimpanzee and macaque. So we think it may be important for the, um, the evolution of language. So we're looking specifically in these areas of the brain and doing similar gene expression and network analyses. And ultimately, what we'd like to do is tie together the data that we get from the human-specific networks with the data that we've uncovered from the FOXP2 human-specific networks to make sense of all of the language-related gene expression networks. So I'd just like to acknowledge that all of this work was done when I was a postdoc in Dan Geshwin's lab at UCLA, and he was the representative human uh, throughout the talk and other members of the lab that assisted we received the non-human primate tissue from Todd Preuss at Emory, and Pat Levitt collaborated with us on the MET project. And thank you for your attention. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.